Father, as we just sang in the song, words of power that will never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. We are aware of our own hearts and how easily they can fall into unbelief, Father. Would you now use your word to transform us? Would you allow your word into the depths, even the recesses of our hearts that we don't want brought to light? Change us so that we would not presume to stand in judgment over Jesus, but to bow at his feet with faith and worship. We ask you to do this in his mighty name. Amen. The trial's purpose was to put the Holocaust on trial, and Eichmann was a tool to that end. That's a a quote from historian Neil Bascom, referring to the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961. Most of the Nazis that were involved with the Jewish Holocaust had already been brought to justice back over a decade before what was called the Nuremberg Trials. It was determined that unprecedented crimes required an unprecedented form of justice because the question was asked, who is fit to bring to justice these men that have done evil in so many different countries? The answer was a coalition of nations. They held the the courts in Germany itself to, to allow the gravity of the situation to set in. Well, Eichmann was one of the few that escaped justice. He managed to flee to Argentina and was living an anonymous life until some Israeli spies figured out where he was, captured him, nabbed him, and brought him back to the newly formed state of Israel. That became the setting for a really interesting question. Who has the authority to judge this man? Does the new nation that's just been born, who made up of Jews that have been murdered, Should it be back in Germany with another Nuremberg trials? Who has the authority to judge this man? That same question is the question that our text puts before us this morning. Who has the authority to judge Jesus? He's going to have a group of very religious, very pious men that are going to presume that they have the authority to judge him. And we're going to see that come out through a series of questions put to Jesus. And yet as Jesus responds to these questions, we're going to discover, turns out that these men are not fit to stand as judge of him, and neither are any of us. The only right response to Jesus is faith. We'll see that three sections around these three sets of questions that are asked of Jesus, the first in 14 through 19, the question of what are his credentials? It's a question of authority. What are his credentials? Then in 20 through 24, they're going to ask, isn't he out of his mind? That's a question of competence. Isn't Jesus actually crazy? Then in 25 through 31, there'll be the question, is he actually the Messiah? That's a question of identity. Might he actually be the Messiah? And all of this, we'll see that Jesus is not someone that any of us can stand in judgment over. If we rightly understand who he is, We must respond in faith. Let's begin in verses 14 through 19. What are his credentials? Now, if you were with us last week, we saw the beginning of Jesus uh, on his way to what's called the Festival of Booze or of Tabernacles. Uh, Jesus had a conversation with his brothers, 
those brothers had suggested that Jesus should go to the who's who's of religious festivals, this Feast of Tabernacles, in order to get a following for himself. Uh, the reason why is that the Feast of Tabernacles was the place you would go if you wanted to be seen, and it was certainly a place you could go to get a large crowd around you. It was an eight-day-long festival. It was the end of the Jewish uh, religious holiday calendar. It was it's something no good religious Jew would miss. But the brother's suggestion was not uh, all that altruistic. It was actually a sneering attempt to goad Jesus. Hey, hey, Jesus, go to that spot. Maybe then you'll actually get a following. Well, Jesus refused, not because he would not ever go to the feast. We'll see in just a second he's going to do that. But because he will not go for their reasons on their timeline. He is on his father's heavenly agenda, and that means he goes precisely when his father tells him to go and not a second earlier. Well, Jesus does end up going to the feast, and the next few weeks we will see as he unveils himself at this feast how the opposition to Jesus begins to rise. The more clearly Jesus talks about himself, the more clearly people will hate him and will seek to kill him. We're told in verse 14 that it's about the middle of the feast that Jesus goes up. So that's, we don't know precisely, maybe day three or day four, day five, somewhere in there. And he goes into the temple and he begins teaching. I'm just going to pause at the moment and just recognize that so often in Jesus' ministry, this is his pattern. Jesus is no just humanitarian. He's no just, not just a miracle worker. The warp and the wolf of Jesus' ministry is teaching, preaching. You cannot understand Jesus unless you come to terms with the words of Christ. And so Jesus goes up to the temple. He starts teaching. There would have been a large crowd there. Then in verse 15, we're told, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that the man has learning when he has never studied? Now, the, the Jews is shorthand for the religious leaders. That would be the scribes and Pharisees. It says they marveled at his teaching. Now, we're not to think here that they were impressed by Jesus' teaching. It's made clear by what comes right after that. This marveling is a sort of sarcastic wondering, has this man no limits to his gall? Is, is he so prideful that he would presume to teach us? The issue at hand is, does he have the authority to stand up and teach? You can see that in the question they ask <clears throat> in verse 15. How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? This is a question plainly of Jesus's credentials. Back in the ancient world, even more so than today, you mattered no more than who you studied with. Now, I don't know if you've ever used any of these uh, video services for medical, uh, medical visits where you, know, you can get a doctor on your smartphone or your computer. And uh, that way when you're sick and you look nasty, you don't have to actually go into the office. You can just talk with a doctor through your smartphone. And they see a picture of your sick-looking face. And you see a picture of them in their office. And uh, every single time I've done this, this has happened. So I assume this is a rule. But um, whenever you see them, the camera's always positioned in such a way you see their face, and then behind them you see their diplomas. <laughs> I mean, we understand this, right? We want our lawyers to have passed the bar exam. We want our doctors to have gone to medical school. You want to know where someone gets their training. In the ancient world, this was even more emphasized in Jewish circles. You presume you can teach. 
Well, whose disciple are you? Were you taught by Gamaliel? Are you of the school of Hillel? Tell us, Jesus, where do you get the authority to presume to teach us? That becomes the occasion for Jesus' answer in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus, as he has done before back in chapter 5 and will do repeatedly in this gospel, emphasizes that he is doing nothing more in his ministry than what his heavenly father has sent him to do. He speaks the words his father teaches him. He does the works the father has given him to do. He is here because the father has sent him. Now, as those uh, who are, as Christians who believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, we, we might think that his authority would be derived from his deity, from him being God. Yet the scriptures teach that he is both God and man. And that mystery of the, the hypostatic union, he is both. In Luke, we're told that he grew in his knowledge and stature before both God and man. Jesus learned things. And we're told that the way that happens is his heavenly father tutors him. Jesus teaches, and the authority he has behind him isn't from any earthly teacher. He's got a diploma on the wall that says, on the authority of Yahweh. So Jesus defends himself, saying, oh, you, you're saying my credentials don't give me the authority to teach. Actually, God himself, that's my authority to teach. But then skip down to verse 18. It bleeds into this, uh, this concept in verse 18. He, he, he switches back and forth between defending himself and uh, making accusations against those trying to judge him. In verse 18, uh, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And this time he's saying, well, not only is my message from God, I'm actually working for the Father's glory, not my own. You think that I don't have authority to speak and I'm just trying to, in a prideful exercise, get people to like me. Well, actually, I'm not doing any of this for me. This is all for my Heavenly Father. You'll see this again and again, the way the Father and the Son work together. Even as we sing songs to Jesus, and even as we glorify Jesus, Jesus in turn turns that glory to his Heavenly Father. This is Jesus saying that there is no reason for you to undermine my credentials or my credibility. I'm not here for myself. I'm here because I was sent. Next, he, he turns and he switches to the, not defending himself, but pointing out the reason they won't believe him. And it's because of their unbelief. That's in verses 17 and 19. In verse 17, he says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus here is telling them why it is they're not believing. And the answer is not intellectual. Here Jesus teaches that the roots of unbelief are not intellectual, they are moral. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but while it's impossible to believe in Jesus without knowledge, the gospel is news that we hear. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, those are things you must understand and believe in order to become a Christian. And yet, unbelief is almost never just about intellect. When people don't believe, 
underneath whatever objections or doubts they may have are almost always something that is out of alignment with God's will. Maybe it's doubting God's goodness because they're so angry at God that something difficult happened in their life. Or maybe it's like a famous atheist not liking the rules God drew for sexuality and so wanting to be free of them, doubting that God exists at all. Whatever the reason that we have underneath, it's not mere intellect. It's not just data that keeps us from believing. That's, maybe you've seen this at work. If you've been witnessing with, to someone and you've been sharing the, who Jesus is, what he came to do, the gospel. and At some point, it's like a switch gets flipped. And there's an irrational hatred that comes out. Maybe you've had that experience before. Have you ever wondered why that happens? It's because unbelief at its core is not just intellectual. It's not just logic. It's the outflow of a heart turned away from God, being confronted with the dark recesses of its heart that doesn't want to be exposed. Jesus has already told us that his role, back in verse 7, that his role was to expose the evil works of the human heart and that he would be hated for it. This is Jesus doing this very thing. He tells them the reason they don't believe is because their hearts are out of alignment with God. The second, <clears throat> the second accusation Jesus has is in verse 19. He tells them that their unbelief is hypocritical. He says, has not Moses given you the law Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He, this would have been a slap in the face to people who styled themselves as the guardians of the law. If anyone kept the law, surely it would be they, they who created fences around the law, rules on top of the rules to keep, make sure that no one even accidentally came close to breaking the rules. And yet they themselves were simply experts and finding all these man-made loopholes over on top of God's law. They didn't love God with all their heart. They certainly didn't love their neighbor. Jesus points out that this is just a mask of religiosity on top. That at their core, their hearts are out of alignment with God. Well, even if these people at this moment are not trying to kill Jesus with their hands, they are certainly at this moment murdering him with their hearts. And that's why Jesus says at the end there, why do you seek to kill me? Now, we need to wrestle with this reality, friends. If Jesus' authority is something that people struggle with because of unbelief, we need to realize the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem's with us. It's not that Jesus has not given us enough reasons to believe in him as if there's not enough evidence out there to prove the historicity of the resurrection or the reliability of the New Testament documents. It's not as if Jesus' words aren't clear enough to understand what God expects. It's not as if his words are incoherent. The problem is our hearts. We don't believe because we cannot stand the thought that we're really that bad off, that the sinless Son of God had to die for us. Realize that it's not that Jesus' words are difficult to understand. It's that they're difficult to accept. The human heart does not want to be exposed for what it is, and so it finds reasons not to believe Jesus. 
Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're checking Christianity out, I, I'm, I'm ho- glad you're here. I, I hope that you will find people here in this church that are willing to help you consider what it is Jesus says. And if you're wondering where to start, the place to start is by studying the Bible. The best thing you could do is find a Christian that would read the Bible with you. And if you need help finding someone to do that, come talk to me afterward. I'd love to help you do that. Well, I, I want to warn you against something that I see happen very often. It's that people sometimes start with a conclusion and they set out to gather evidence just to prove that conclusion. They're not really open to the fact that they might be wrong. So I want to ask you the question, before you start considering Jesus, are you prepared for the reality that you might be wrong? You might be wrong about yourself. You might be wrong about God. You certainly might be wrong about what God expects from you. Until you're willing to begin this sort of a journey seeking Jesus with humility, you'll never hear what the words Jesus has to say. You'll always find a reason to reject them. Now, to us that are believers, let's realize that when we find unbelief in our own hearts, when we find doubt, or maybe we find a section of God's words particularly difficult to swallow, we need to realize that this same tendency is still in our hearts. That maybe an unconfessed sin is leading us to try and find ways around parts of the Bible. That maybe the reason we are doubting God's goodness is because we have fallen so out of alignment with God that we've almost forgotten what it's like to sense his goodness. When we are helping each other on this journey as pilgrims, as fellow Christians, if someone says, I'm struggling with doubt in a particular area, don't just jump straight to the apologetic answers. Those are helpful but press in and find out where their heart is. Ask them, are they, are they right with God at the moment? Unbelief can spring up in our own heart, and it's not just a matter of the intellect. It's moral. Sin blinds us. If we don't do the work of unearthing our sin, it'll lead us away from Jesus. Well, the first set of objections to Jesus, the first questions were along the lines of authority. What are his credentials? Well, Jesus has answered that set of objections, so they try a new line of attack in verses 20 through 24. This line of attack is this. Is he out of his mind? It's a question of his competence. In verse 20, the crowd answered him, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, on its surface, it seems like the people here are... uh, accusing Jesus of being uh, demon-possessed. And it may well be that they really believe that. You have to understand in the ancient world how they understood demon possession much more easily than we do today. They were not embarrassed by the reality of angels and demons. They understood that sometimes these evil spirits, demons, would possess people, cause great harm to both them and those around them. And that someone under demonic influence would do both evil actions as well as speak evil words. They would try and use their any means possible to harm people. They're accusing Jesus here of being so off base that he's imagining a persecution that doesn't really exist. And they're saying that's so wicked that the only conclusion you can come to is he must be demon-possessed. Now, the reason why I would say that I don't think they really thought he was demon-possessed is they knew full well that they were trying to kill Jesus. 
It'll come out later in the passage. It's public knowledge that these people are trying to kill Jesus. So this is just them playing coy, saying Jesus must be out of his mind so they don't have to deal with what it is that Jesus is saying. Now, now realize, though, that this conclusion that Jesus must be insane at one level means you're actually beginning to understand what he's saying. Some people try to minimize the offense of Jesus by saying he's just another in a long line of good moral teachers, kind of like Buddha or any other wise sage from the past. And yet if you really understand what Jesus claims for himself, friend, that's not an option for you. Both Christians and atheists alike have understood this. C.S. Lewis famously used an argument along these lines. This one section of that argument, it says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Similarly, no believer himself, a man who's now dead named Christopher Hitchens, he came to the same conclusion. After describing all the things Jesus claims about himself, he says this, such a person, if not divine, would be a sorcerer and a fanatic. See, Jesus doesn't leave us middle ground here. If what he says about himself is true, then we must take those claims seriously. Otherwise, the question, is he insane, is a valid one. Well, Jesus goes on to show the problem isn't that he has lack of competence. The, lack, the problem is the people in front of him don't actually want to give him a fair hearing. In, in verses 21 and following, he says, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The way to understand how Jesus' arguments flows most easily is start at the end, verse 24. That's really the main point Jesus is driving to. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He is indicting the Pharisees in front of him, telling them they are not giving him a fair hearing. They are giving the appearance of justice when really just looking for a convenient excuse to wipe away the things that Jesus is teaching. The verses that come before show how they're doing that. So what is it that they did? Well, it goes all the way back to what Jesus did in chapter 5. Remember, he dared on a Sabbath, on a Saturday, to heal a man that was a paralytic that was paralyzed. And after he did that, he dared to say that he had the authority to do that because he works the same way God in heaven works, seven days a week. The Pharisees have been so incensed over this that they have been looking for a reason to kill Jesus. And he proves that this is their motivation by showing a blatant double standard on their point. He says that you already make exceptions for work being done on Sabbath, you just won't make an exception for me. So you have to understand how the uh, idea of circumcision worked for newly born boys back then. Uh, there was a uh, commandment giving, given in God's law that when a baby boy was born, the parents eight days in had to take that baby boy to the temple and have him circumcised. Now that's all well and good, easy enough to do. 
But what happens if the baby boy is born on Friday? Well, at that point, the day you're supposed to bring the baby boy into the temple on is on Saturday, the Sabbath. And that puts two of God's laws in opposition to each other. One law says no work is to be done on the Sabbath. The other law says you must circumcise the child on the Sabbath. Rabbis in Jesus' day had wrestled with this and other such examples of this where God's laws seemed to run into each other. And they had found a way of prioritizing one law over the other. You have to. They had said it is not breaking the Sabbath to continue to obey God in this sense, to make the boy's body whole by circumcising him as not breaking God's law because God commanded it. So Jesus says, okay, if you say making a one little part of an infant boy's body whole is okay on the Sabbath, then why are you telling me I'm breaking the Sabbath for making a whole man's body whole? This is a blatant double standard. It shows that they already understand that there are times where God's law is not broken, even though on the surface it looks as if it is. And yet they will hold Jesus' feet to the fire because they are not trying to do justice here. These are people looking for a way to extinguish a flame that they are afraid will break out into an inferno. These are people that are looking to tie off a loose end that they feel has been hanging around for far too long. These are people that hate Jesus. And they are willing to live with blatant double standards if that's what it means to get rid of him. See, friends, the, the problem, problem 2,000 years ago and the problem today, it's not lack of evidence in Jesus. It's our inability to do justice when it comes to judging Jesus. You know, there were a group of very, very smart men that put themselves to something called the Jesus Seminar. They set out to go through the Bible and discover what in the Bible was really said by Jesus and what were added by other people along the way. You know, it's very interesting when you do something like that. The Jesus you end up with at the end ends up looking a lot like you. They edited out virtually anything that would have any sort of, uh, would be any sort of difficulty for a modern person to like. Their Jesus met all their sensibilities, upheld all of their values, and in the end, he's a Jesus that has no power. He's a made-up Jesus. It's so easy for us to do this same thing to Jesus, to use our own judgment as if we can stand in judgment over Jesus and remake him in our own image. The Jesus of the gospel is both like us and so very different from us. Oh, he's like us. He truly is a human being. He knows about all our frailties. He knows about temptation. And yet he is truly God. He's sent from heaven. And that means as much as we may be able to relate with him at another level, we will never be able to stand in judgment over him. Our only right reaction before this son of God is faith, not to try and stand in judgment. Jesus has dealt with two lines of questioning from these religious people in his day. The first had to do with whether or not he had the right credentials. The second had to do with whether or not he was crazy. Now in verses 25 through 31, the camera shifts to a different group altogether. Finally, someone's going to ask the right question. It goes to the crowds who are asking, 
Might he actually be the Messiah? Look with me at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were therefore, uh, therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? There's a group of people, your average everyday man, Jerusalemite, your average Jew with no credential behind their name, they are much more favorable to Jesus than the Jewish leaders are. They look at the fact that Jesus is not afraid. You notice there that they know about this plot to kill Jesus. And the fact that Jesus isn't at all afraid to stand up and confront these leaders, that makes them think for a second. Maybe he actually is the Messiah. Well, don't let that initial positive reaction to Jesus fool you. They still have some hurdles to get over. In verse 27, we see, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They still had some doubts to work through, as we'll find out later in chapter 7. There was an expectation that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, or that no one would have any clue where he came from, but he certainly wasn't supposed to come from Galilee, where Jesus was known to come from. And yet realize, that at the very least, we could say of this group, they're willing to give Jesus a hearing. They're willing to entertain the possibility, maybe he is the Christ. They're the only ones in this passage that ask, actually ask the right question. Is Jesus the Messiah? Jesus responds back to them, and uh, the way he does so shows that their question is, uh, of, of his origin is a little off base. He says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do, do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Uh, Jesus is basically saying my earthly town that I come from really isn't the issue. If they actually knew everything, they would know Jesus was from Bethlehem, but that's not really the issue at hand. The issue is, is Jesus from heaven or not? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is his Father their heavenly Father or not? And if they understood that, then his identity would be crystal clear. Is he the Christ? That's the real question. Well, we see that after, after this, a fault line begins to open up in verses 30 through 31. The, the way the two groups respond to Jesus shows us what happens when the human heart is confronted with the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. So in verse 30, the religious leaders, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They understood the problem that Jesus was. They were ready to be rid of him, but it was not his heavenly father's time yet. They could not touch him because it was not time for Jesus yet to go to the cross. Yet there's another group in verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They were on the other side of that fault line. They thought that maybe this is, in fact, the Christ of all the miracles he's done. And yet their belief, as we'll see as the passage continues, it doesn't continue on. Maybe they're of the group that welcomes him on Palm Sunday shouting Hosanna. Or maybe they're of the group that abandons him and one day shouts, crucify him. This group of people confronted with Jesus, very few of them would go on to actually follow through in belief. 
And yet this fault line will just continue to grow and grow until now, on the other side of Easter, 2,000 years later, that fault line is a chasm. The question of which side of that fault line, decides which side of the fault line you're on, is this. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he who he claims to be? If Jesus is who he claims to be, friends, then it doesn't matter what opposition he faces. It doesn't matter what he asks you to do. It doesn't matter how difficult it is to swallow. If Jesus is who he says he is, then our only right reaction is to bow to him in worship, to have faith. And yet so often we try to do the opposite. We're as good today as they were back then of trying to stand in judgment of Jesus. We think of him like a, another commodity that we can comparison shop on Amazon for. I'll, I'll weigh Jesus and what he asks of me versus other religions and what they ask of me. I'll weigh this version of Christianity that has customized to like certain things that I like and to exclude certain things that I don't like versus the Christianity presented in the Bible. Now, friend, if we are going, if we're going to respond rightly to this Jesus, we don't have the option of standing in judgment over him. If he's truly the son of God from heaven, if he's truly the only one that revealed the Father's will, if he's truly the only one that died for your sins so you could come to God, friend, what ground do you have on to judge him? We need to realize that we need his help to overcome our unbelief and to believe in him. I'm thankful that even in the scriptures we have examples of this. Lord, help my unbelief. That's a perfectly good prayer for you today as it was back then. This Jesus presented to us in this passage is one that will ask us more than we could ever possibly imagine. But he'll do so because he's given us more than we ever imagined possible. See, this Jesus is not one that can fit into our neat little boxes of human morality. He's not one that will fit our preconceptions of what a teacher should be or what a leader should be. No, he's the God who's revealed himself to us. And he asks us to bow our knee before him and believe he is who he says he is. So friends, this morning, I wonder, what will you say when someone asks you what you believe about Jesus? What will you say when someone, after church on Sunday, asks you why it is that you go to church every Sunday? What will you tell someone at work that asks you what Easter is all about? What will you do when someone asks you why you would conform your whole life to a book that was written 2,000 years ago? What, what will you do when you're asked, who is this Christ? But if you haven't thought through that answer, you, you need to. For centuries, believers have been using the Apostles' Creed as a, a summary statement of what they believe about Jesus. And I pray that maybe this morning, you too, would stand with conviction and say, Jesus is the Christ. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. None of us can judge this Jesus, but all of us must answer the question, is he the Christ? Let's pray.